Welcome, everybody. Good to see you. My name is Tim Harris. I am pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church on the very last Sunday in 2017. Who's had a good year? Who's had a terrible year? Yeah, who's ready for a new year? Yeah, it's going to be good. It's going to be new. God bless you. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 and this very last message of the Christmas season. I want to go back to a passage I've already preached this year. Um, but the fact that you preach it once doesn't mean there's not a, another sermon there. And that's what I'm going to go back to Matthew chapter 2. We read it uh, in the beginning of the season when we were in the middle of our missions emphasis. We talked about the wise men, uh, the nations coming to Bible for Jesus, uh, the king of the world. But I want to come back to Matthew chapter 2 today to look at King Herod and talk about what it means to be in a battle against evil. Matthew chapter 2 is where we will be. Speaking of the battle between good and evil, how many of you seen the new Star Wars already? Have you seen it? Jedi? Yeah, did you like it? Yeah, it's changed, y'all. The first Star Wars came out in 1977. You were all just children. I was 12 years old when it first came out. It was, a, it was amazing. It really, really was amazing. The original Star Wars sort of played off all the old cowboy movies. And, and, and if you ever watch it, you'll understand what I mean. It's, 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 it's a remake in a new context, a new setting of all the old cowboy movies. The good versus evil. In the old cowboy movies, the good guys wore... White hats and the bad guys wore black hats. And so the original Star Wars was sort of with that whole theme of light and darkness. You go to the dark side or you'd be on the side with the light. And Luke Skywalker was the hero. He was dressed in white. And Darth Vader was the villain of all villains. We've never had a villain so evil. He was absolutely amazing. He wore a mask that was Black. Am I the only one that's ever seen a Star Wars movie in this whole, in this whole house? He wore a, a helmet that was black. He had no eyes. If the eyes are the window to the soul, then if Darth Vader has no eyes, he has no soul. He was a soulless, evil villain. Absolutely. But now that was 40 years ago, you all. Star Wars apparently is going gonna, is gonna to make some money because this has been around for 40 years. Years and now it's a little bit different. The whole battle between good and evil ain't what it used to be. By this time, I don't know how many Star Wars movies have we had now 150, 160, something like that. I may mean, just keep on making them. Darth Vader started out evil and then he was good and then he was evil and then he was good again. I think when he died, he was good again, right? Something like that. Luke Skywalker has always been the hero, but in this last movie, Luke Skywalker almost gutted Ben Solo in his sleep. And you're thinking, Luke, that, that, that's not good. But all of a sudden in Star Wars, good and evil, it gets kind of blurry, kind of murky. Uh, the, the, new, uh, the new villain is, is Kylo Ren, who was good, and now he's bad. But we're led to believe that he still got good in him, so he may still turn good. But we don't know. We don't know. Finn was bad, then he turned good, and now he's still good for now. The, the new heroine, her name is Ray. She's awesome, except in the last movie, I thought there for a minute, she's going to go to the dark side. You understand what I'm saying? The battle between good and evil anymore in our day and age is kind of murky. The moral universe, and not just Star Wars, has become murky. And honestly, the moral universe in which you live is kind of murky. For the most part, we're not very good at distinguishing good from evil, especially when it's right around us, especially when it's in us. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 2. Let's take a look at the battle between good and evil and see what we can learn about the battle we face today. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 is where we'll be. 
Now, you know the Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke. It came, uh, came to pass in those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, all of that. Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem. The angels appear to the shepherds. That's the story in every Charlie Brown Christmas special you've ever seen. Matthew tells a different story, and so pay attention to the differences. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem and Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem, search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Verse 16, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal, brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel, because those who were trying to kill the child are Is that the Christmas story the way you remember it? I mean, I know you know that the wise men are part of the story, but, but we tend to mangle this part of the story. We tend to mangle it by, in our imaginations, just putting the wise men in the stable with the shepherds. I mean, you know, the, the Christmas scene on your mantle has the Mary and Joseph and the stable in the manger, and you got angels, and you got shepherds on this side, and wise on this side, because that makes the most beautiful you know, Christmas nativity scene ever. The problem is that's not how the story went at all. The wise men were not in the stable. They did not come and find them in a manger. They come and find them in a house in Bethlehem. This is sometime after Christmas. We don't know how long after Christmas. It looks like Mary and Joseph settled in a house in Bethlehem for some period of time after Jesus was born. 
We miss that part of the story for the most part. We also miss all of the parts of the story that Matthew tells us because Matthew tells us sort of a different angle on this story. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, we got angels singing and praising God. Glory to God in the highest. It's a beautiful, amazing, silent night, holy night. But Matthew does not give us a silent or a holy night. It's something altogether different. Matthew's account of the story has nightmares. I mean, Joseph has horrible dreams. The wise men have horrible dreams. We got a villain, his name is Herod. Herod is an evil, evil man, an evil king. We know him through history. The worst things he did are not even in scripture. And this is as bad as we can even imagine. Herod's a villain, an evil, evil man. In Matthew's telling of the story, every baby boy in the city of Bethlehem is slaughtered. It's one of the bloodiest massacres in history, right, right here. It's amazing and, and, and just dumbfounding to even think about this. This is the Christmas story. Man, we got traveling strangers, we got nightmares, we got blood flowing in the streets. And this is the Christmas story. It's almost as if when Jesus comes to earth, all hell breaks loose. Why does it seem like all hell breaks loose? Because it does. It, it does. Why? I mean, you thought it was a silent night, holy night. You thought that Emmanuel meant God with us, that God has come to be with us. And since God is with us, there's going to be peace on earth and goodwill to men. We thought it was going to be peace and, and holiness and sweetness, but that's not how it turns out. When God comes to be with us, when God begins to do his work in saving the world in the form of Jesus, God in the flesh with us, all hell breaks loose. Because of a very, very simple principle of the spiritual life. You've got to understand this. Whenever God goes to work, evil goes to work. Always. Whenever God shows up, the devil will show up. Always. Why? Why? Because they're enemies. Because there's a battle being waged. It goes all the way back to Lucifer, back in eternity, when Lucifer caused a rebellion in heaven, was cast out of heaven, took a third of the angels with him, and the battle continues to rage. There's a battle going on. And understand, Jesus himself said that he came to destroy the work of the evil one. It was Jesus' very purpose in coming. To engage this battle, to, to win this war, Jesus coming has everything to do with this age-old battle between goodness and evil, between God and the evil one. Now, it's not a fair fight. It's not an even fight. God is infinitely more powerful than the devil. The devil was a, a creature, one of God's creations, created to praise him and serve him, but the devil chose to rebel. God could squash him like a bug, and one day he will. This is what we know. This is not a, 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 some sort of battle where we don't know the outcome. We know that God wins. We know that God wins. We know that we win. We're going to overcome by the blood of the Lamb. We've read the end of the book. But this is not the end of the book yet. This is still the middle. And in the middle, there are battles to fight. Whenever God goes to work, evil always, always goes to work. That you've experienced this in your own life. You just don't understand. You forget what's going on. This is exactly why whenever you try to serve the Lord, instantly you start to feel opposition. And you wonder, what in the world's going on? 
You, you, you sometimes ask the question, gosh, I've been trying to go to church. I've been trying to do right. I've been reading my Bible and everything just keeps going wrong. I must be doing something wrong. No, no, you're reading the signs absolutely opposite. If, if what you're doing brings the opposition of the evil one, you must be doing something right. You're doing something right if the devil's attacking you. That's probably a good sign for you when the devil begins to see that you're somehow a threat to his kingdom. Jesus came to destroy the work of the evil one. So when you begin to follow Jesus, you're going to be on the side of Jesus in destroying the work of the evil one. And you've just engaged a fight. And the devil's going to fight you. The devil's going to come up against you. That's why every single time you try to do right, you meet opposition. Every single time you try to turn over a new leaf and, and, and be the person Christ has called you to be, life gets harder because you have an enemy. You have an enemy. He is the devil, and you forget all about him. You forget about him every time. You just want to pretend like he's not there. You cannot pretend like he's not there. The problem is when bad things happen, you forget there's a devil, so you blame God. Got people walking around saying, I'm mad at God, man. I'm just mad at God. I'm, I guess I'm just bitter at God. Well, what in the world has God ever done besides bless you? Why don't you get mad at the one who hates you? Why don't you get mad at the devil who opposes you? Everything God is doing is on the side of goodness and salvation. God only wants to bring good things to your life. Whenever you see killing and destruction and evil, that's the work of the devil. So understand, there's sort of two mistakes you can make. You can underestimate the devil, and most people do. They never see him at work. They never blame him for the awful, evil things in the world. They blame God as if there's no devil. Completely underestimate the devil, and you must not do that. The other problem people have is they overestimate the devil. They see a devil behind every bush. You know, and, and they walk around afraid of the devil. You don't fear the devil. He has no power over you if you're in Christ. The only thing he can do is lie to you. And that's what he'll do. He just whispers lies in your ear. He's basically lazy. He has no new strategies, no new tricks. All he does is lie. But boy, he's a good liar. He's a liar and the father of lies, Jesus says. So he deceives us. I guess that's his main, main strategy. He, he deceives us. He fools us. So it makes it very, very difficult for us to recognize evil when we see it. And that's the next thing I have to point out to you. We rarely look in the mirror and recognize the face of evil. I mean, we don't recognize evil anywhere. That's sort of his goal, to, to make us forget he's there. Because if we don't recognize evil, if we don't see evil, then we don't engage the fight. We, we don't oppose it. And, and in that case, we just become sitting ducks for him. We don't recognize evil in the world. We don't recognize evil in ourselves. Maybe if we could see it in ourselves, we'd recognize it in the world. I guess our problem is we have this tendency to define evil, but always in a way that makes us feel like we're good. We have this amazing ability to rationalize anything we think, anything we say, anything that we want to do. We can make it sound like the best idea ever. We can always make our evil seem good. That's why when you talk, you just don't ever hear gossip. Coming out of your mouth, you don't hear it. 
Now, you can hear other people gossiping. You're thinking, well, gossipers going to burn in hell. But when you, when you talk, you never hear gossip. You just hear vital information that needs to be said. When, when you talk, it's just what needs to be said. You know, you, you just like to, you, you just say whatever you think like your grandma. You, you didn't hear gossip when your grandma talked either. But you understand, it's gossip. Whenever you're saying something that, that you like about somebody that you don't, that's gossip. You understand? But you don't hear that when it comes out of your mouth. It never seems like gossip when you say it. Just like it never seems like a lie when you tell it. Because before you lie, you convince yourself it's true, don't you? I mean, you can convince your, you lie to yourself, and then you lie to everybody else, and you'll stand there, and, and you'll defend your lie till the death. Because you don't hear a lie out of your mouth. It always sounds true when you say it. You know, when you diddle with the money at work, it's not stealing. You know, it's not stealing when you do it. Now, if anybody else did it, you'd be all up in it. But now I'm telling you, when you do it, it's not stealing. Because you can rationalize what you do. When you cheat on your spouse, it's not adultery. It's something else. You'll find a way to rationalize it. You'll tell yourself that, that she's so cold and she's just so, so, she's turned against you and you deserve this. You know, you're a man and you got needs. Right? So it's not adultery when you do it. It's the best. It, it is absolutely necessary that you do what you're doing. I mean, you understand? This is the game we play. This is how the devil ties us up in knots because we don't see evil in the mirror. We don't see sin in our own lives. And if you don't see sin, it's a horrible kind of condemnation because you'll never seek forgiveness. If you're always right, then you never understand what's wrong that only Jesus can repair in you. If you think that the world is broken, but you're not broken, you will never, ever find healing. The problem is that we don't recognize evil in the mirror. We don't see sin in our own lives. And when you don't see it, you don't resist it. You understand? And that's how the devil gets you. He just strokes your back like a cat, and you just purr and roll over and let him scratch you on the belly. And you have this cozy relationship with the devil in your own life. When he's your enemy... He's like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. And you don't seem to understand that. You flirt with him. You think that you're going to take him home like a pet. He's a roaring lion who seeks to devour you. We rarely look in the mirror and recognize the face of evil. This is where the battle begins. And that's why most of us have never, ever started the fight. Because it starts in ourselves. It starts with the sin in me. And this story, of course, Herod is the bad guy. And he is as bad as it comes. You know, he really is a horrible, horrible man. I mean, look outside of Scripture and just read history books. Look up King Herod. Find out everything you can find out about King Herod. You know, this guy is, is, is terrible, terrible. The only way he became king of Judea is through manipulating and, and, and sort of working the situation, using his father's connections, and that's how he ascends to the throne. He is not a worthy king. He is not a good leader. There's nothing about this man that makes him fit to lead other than the fact of who his father was and the way he worked that situation. He becomes king, but he's never suited to be a leader. He's never fit to be king, and that insecurity makes him a dangerously evil man. He trusts no one. He's always afraid that someone's going to come and take the throne away from him. You see that playing out in this story right here. Yeah, he killed one of his wives. He killed two of his own sons. He killed his father-in-law. He killed his brother-in-law. 
I mean, this is the kind of man that he is. This is one of the most wicked men that ever, ever sat on a throne. King Herod, he's a horrible man. And in this story, just sort of as a matter of passing, we find out that he ordered the slaughter of every single baby boy in Bethlehem. Okay, stop and absorb that. This is a king who ordered the death, the slaughter of baby boys, every single baby boy in Bethlehem, two years old and under, every single toddler boy. Now that's evil. That's evil. But the other thing is that while King Herod is, is ultimately responsible for the death of every single baby boy in Bethlehem, he never killed one of them. Did you see that? He never killed a one of them. I mean, I guarantee you, Herod passed, he issued the decree, but then he went and sat down and he, he finished watching his episode of Law and Order. You know, he was watching, he was binge watching Game of Thrones, and he never got out of his chair because he didn't have to. All he had to do was give the order, and when he gave the order, other people did his work. So this is what you have to understand. When something like this happens, when evil on this scale happens, although it may be one man responsible, King Herod, and, and I think he deserves that blame, you've got to recognize there are lots and lots of guilty people in this. There are a, a number of soldiers who go out into Bethlehem and they physically kill the babies. King Herod probably never physically killed a baby, but the soldiers did. And they would always say they were just following his orders. But that's no excuse. They committed the atrocity themselves with their own bloody hands. Do you see that? King Herod probably never killed a baby, but, but there are lots of soldiers who did. On top of that, there are a whole lot of people in Bethlehem that let this happen. They let this happen. I guess there's the old saying that, that the only way the evil can prevail is if good people do nothing. And, and good people are really good at doing nothing. I mean, I know a lot of good people, and, and I myself consider myself a good person, and we don't do much, ever, ever. As long as it doesn't directly affect me, as long as it's not my baby being killed, I will probably just sit back and let it all happen. I mean, this is how it happens in Bethlehem. There are a whole lot of people who do nothing, and, and they would tell themselves they're not guilty. They could tell themselves that they, there was nothing they could do. They could tell themselves that it was out of their hands. But I'm telling you, just being a bystander when evil happens is evil in itself. I, I would say it this way, to stand by and do nothing in the face of evil is another kind of evil in itself. To stand by and do nothing. Y'all, this is probably the way most of us stumble into sin. Not by doing stuff, but by doing nothing. Because we really are responsible for the evil that happens when we are a witness to it, and we don't do anything. The slaughter of every baby in Bethlehem depended on a whole lot of people who were just willing to stand there and let that happen. You could do something. Surely there's something you can do. When your neighbor's baby is, is being dashed against the wall, surely there's something you can do. At the very least, how can you stand there and do nothing? I read this story once in the local paper about a, 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 one of our local mental health facilities that had a patient there. Apparently, everybody knew he was dangerous. Everybody knew he was unstable. And everyone knew that he was a particular threat to women. 
But one night in the facility, one of the female workers had gone into the dining room. In between mealtimes, the dining room seemed empty. And that, that patient jumped her and pinned her to the ground. She started screaming for help, help. You know, this is in our town. Help, help, help. And, and others start rushing from all across the facility to rush in that dining room to save her. And they do. That They saved her. They helped her. But once they got there, they realized that there were several really strong big men in that dining room who were just watching that happen. They were in the room just letting the woman be attacked, and they did nothing. These are big guys, strong guys, who do nothing. How can you just stand by and let evil do its work? How can you just turn your head and act like you don't see? How can you tell yourself there's nothing you can do? I really want to think if I were in that dining room, I'd help that woman. Now, y'all, there's nothing much I can do. I'm not a tough guy. Every woman in this church can whip me. <laughs> I ain't no lie. I'm looking at the pews. I ain't taking on any of you. I mean, I, third grade kids, maybe, you know. But I'm not a good bet even in that. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know what I would do. My only superpower is when I talk, I put people to sleep. I, I can do that. Maybe that, that would help me. I, I don't know. There's something that I would do, and there's something that you can do. I mean, think about your life right now. What is the evil? What are the things going on around you that you see and you know about, but you just pretend like you don't know? Are there people being mistreated in your life, in your context, or are there those who are being harmed, and you just act like that you don't know, you act like there's nothing you can do, because surely there's something you can do. In, in the face of evil, we must do what we can by God's will and by God's power. I mean, I'm not alone in this, right? I mean, I have the Lord. I think in the moment when I engage the fight, when I step in on behalf of others who need a defender, when I step in on the side of good, when evil is prevailing, I mean, I've got God's wisdom. I've got God's power here. It's not just all up to me. I can do something. I can step into there. I can step into the name of Jesus and do something, say something. But you just can't let evil win. You just, just can't sit there like you have no dog in this fight. You are in this fight. You have an enemy. We all have an enemy, and he doesn't take a day off, and he's evil. He's not going to leave you alone just because you're tired. He's not going to lay off because it's Christmas vacation. You understand? He never, ever takes his eye off of you. He never cancels his plan to destroy you. From the moment your children are born, he's after your children. He'd kill them if he could, and yet you don't care enough to equip your children for this battle? You understand, you have an enemy. You have an enemy, and the battle never ends until Jesus ends it. It's exhausting. It's, it's exhausting. When you begin to understand that this is the world we live in, that there's always good and evil, and that there's a battle raging, and that you have a part to play in this, you have to step into this, it's exhausting. I know we'd all rather stay home in a cozy sweater and pretend like it's not like this, but this is the world. This is how it is. Whenever God goes to work, the devil goes to work right beside him, and we get caught in the middle of that. We've got to do the work of the Lord while there's still time to do the work of the Lord. And we have to rescue the perishing. We have to step in on behalf of those that the devil tries to steal, kill, and destroy. We are on the Lord's side, are we not? 
One other part of the story we, we just overlooked, but it's a beautiful part of the story. Notice what the scripture says. Verse 13. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Okay, stop. I just encourage you to read all of the references to Joseph in scripture. Because nearly every time he's mentioned, he's in the middle of like a really horrible dream. If I were Joseph, I'd quit going to sleep. Because God speaks to him in dreams, and because Joseph is now in this battle, in this war, Joseph's life is constantly turned upside down. In this particular moment, the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and says, get up, flee to Egypt. Go to Egypt. Okay, remember, how did Joseph get to Bethlehem? Why is he in Bethlehem? Do you remember? Because it's beside the beach and he's always wanted to live there? No. Why is he in Bethlehem? Because of the government. He went there because of the census. He went there because of the taxes. But what happened while he was there? You know, they'd always wanted to have a baby in Bethlehem. No, no, no. No, that really wasn't the plan, I'm sure. But while they were there for government reasons, the time came that she gave birth. So Mary gave birth, and they gave birth in a really nice hospital, right? I mean, no. Everything goes wrong here. Do you understand? He's being opposed because he is right there at ground zero of everything that God is doing to save the world. And all of the forces of hell come against this man, Joseph. Everything opposes him. And now, two years later, they're still in Bethlehem, and God says, what? Go to Egypt. Egypt now, flee to Egypt. What does flee mean? Take your time, pack a few bags, take some time to get some money together. No, it's go tonight. Flee, go tonight. Get up, flee to Egypt, and stay there till I tell you to return. Herod is gonna search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet when he said, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, that's a strange prophecy and a strange prophecy to fulfill that the Savior, the Messiah, must go through Egypt. But this is how it happens. Because of what Herod is going to do in Bethlehem, Joseph and Mary and the baby in the night have to leave and flee and go to Egypt and stay for a while. Why Egypt? And for that matter, if you've read a lot of scripture, if you understand the history of the people of God, what does Egypt represent? Somebody tell me. Well, what is Egypt? It's a place of bondage. It's a place of bitterness. It's a place of, of, of slavery. It's a place of captivity. It's a place of crying out to God for generation after generation. God, where are you? God, why aren't you helping us? God, when will you save us? When will you rescue us? How long? How long? How long? I mean, this is Egypt. Egypt is not the dream vacation. Egypt is not a lovely house on the beach. Egypt is a place of bondage. Egypt is the place of darkness. Egypt is the place of fleeing and hiding. Egypt is the place of crying out to God. Why Egypt? Why Egypt? It fulfills what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Why did Jesus have to go through Egypt? Because we all go through Egypt. Let's be honest, some of you spent Christmas in Egypt. <laughs> 
and you never left Simpson County. Egypt is a place of sadness and sorrow and bitterness, bondage. It's a place of crying out to God, how long, how long, how long will you ignore my cry? How long am I going to be stuck in this place? How long, when will you rescue me? That's Egypt. And if Jesus is going to save you and me, he's going to have to know about Egypt. He's going to have to spend some time in Egypt. If he's going to be my savior, then he's going to have to somehow, one way or the other, know what it's like to spend Christmas in Egypt. It's hard, y'all. Life is hard. It's hard because there's a battle raging. And you and I are caught in the middle of it, whether we like it or not, that there aren't any bystanders in this battle. We're all in it. You have an enemy. He looks for every single way to destroy your family, to destroy your marriage, to destroy you. He'd kill you if he could. Sometimes in all the sickness and sadness and suffering, we blame God. We wonder why, how long, And what Jesus says, he says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life. So whenever you see stealing and killing and destruction, when you experience sadness, when you experience the the, the death, the destruction of things dear to you, remember who's responsible for that. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. You are in a battle. You forget. And because you forget, you you don't fight. You don't engage. And because you don't engage, you never have any victory. Sometimes this battle will land you in Egypt. It will land you in a place of suffering. It will land you in a place of sickness. It will land you in a place of bondage. And you will wonder how long, how long, and why do I have to stay here? It's it's sort of the uh, unspoken lesson of the Christmas story. That this place of suffering through which you are now passing is a place where Christ himself has passed. This this is why he comes. This is why he comes, to take on flesh, to live with us, to be among us, not just for company, not just for fellowship. He comes to experience what we experience, to live the life that we live, to know the brokenness, to know the sadness, to know what it is to go through Egypt. This place of suffering to which you are passing is a place where Christ himself has passed. He will be with you, and he will bring you out. He will bring you out. This happens to fulfill what the prophet said when he said, out of Egypt I have called my son out of Egypt. He goes through Egypt so that he can be brought out. And you're going to be brought out too. I know that, that Christmas for us is a, is a silent night, holy night. It's, uh, stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. We make it seem so calm and quiet. That's not the full story. When Jesus came to earth, all hell broke loose. And it is still breaking loose. There is a battle raging and you are in it but you will have victory if you believe if you walk with Jesus if you take on his power 
if you will follow him wherever he leads you, you may go through Egypt, but you will come out, and you will come out victorious. Always. Pray with me. Lord, I'm preaching to people who are weary, weary of the battle, weary of the constant struggle against powers, against invisible spiritual enemies, Lord. We're constantly confused by this. We tend to turn on each other. We tend to begin to act as if our enemy is flesh and blood, Lord, but it's never flesh and blood. Our enemy is a spiritual enemy, a lion who roams to and fro, whose face we do not see, but whose attacks we experience on a daily basis. God, I pray that you would help us to recognize the face of evil, the the sin in ourselves, first of all, Lord, so that that when we can fight it up close, when we begin to identify it in our own selves, Lord, we'll be better at recognizing it in the world. Jesus, I pray that we will not be so content to live lives of comfort underneath our snuggie by the fireplace, pretending like there is no battle being fought. Help us not to turn away, Lord, when those around us are mistreated or or are suffering, Lord, because of evil, Lord. Help us to be bold. Help us to stand. Help us to fight. And help us to know victory in Jesus' name. God, there are those in this house today wounded. Those in this house today who have been the, the play toys of the evil one, Lord, and they haven't even recognized, Lord, that they were in the fight. Pray, Lord, that today you will give them strength and discernment and the ability, Lord, to step back into life and take a place of victory before the enemy. Lord, I pray for those who have spent Christmas in a place of suffering and sorrow and sadness. Lord, I pray that by your power you will bring them out, a place of victory and light and peace. God, we long for the day when there are no more battles to fight. We long for the day when evil is defeated. We long for the day when death and the grave and the devil himself are cast into that bottomless pit, Lord, of destruction forever and ever and ever. We long for the day when good wins and love prevails. In the meantime, Lord Jesus, help us to walk with you, to find comfort and protection in your name. Help us, Lord, never ever to forget that we have an enemy. But most of all, Lord, help us never to forget that we have a powerful friend in you. We pray these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.